our activity this morning. Uh, well, talk about blessed. I am, I am very blessed to be included in this whole um, enterprise here. I'm very blessed to know Paul Looney and to uh, have, have sat under some of his teaching and I've been to a retreat and uh, I, I just love this model. Um, it's so it's so simple and but but very deep <laughs> and very applicable to so many things. Uh, my name is Ruth Stitt. I'm a licensed professional counselor in private practice in Tomball and the Woodlands. Um, I see I see some clients at Woods Edge and uh, have been a part of that church for going on five years now. And I don't know that I'm heading up anything in particular, but I have wanted for a very long time to be a part of implementing a some kind of pastoral care, lay counseling ministry in a church because I believe so strongly in the the body of Christ meeting the needs of people. You know, not every problem that comes to me um, in my practice requires professional counseling. And I've often felt that, uh, you know, if, if our churches were really, if everybody in our churches was fully walking in their gifts and was, you know, just being uh, blessed with opportunities to give and to serve, and if that was all working the way that God wants it to, I, I'd be out of business. And that would be just fine with me because, I, you know, I... I could just play music and then I, you know, I'd sell flowers or, you know, just do something else. So um, I commend you for, for wanting to be a part of this. I like to surround myself with um, lifelong learners. You know, I'm from a family of lifelong learners, you know, people that just want to soak up more and more knowledge and wisdom, um, and especially those that want to have knowledge and wisdom because they just so want to minister to other people. So, you know, I salute you for, for being here, for taking the time to just gain new skills, new insight, uh, some tools, some resources, so that in whatever context God calls you to serve, um, and, the, and the needs are so urgent and so many um, that every... every uh, Every soldier is needed, right? So um, I'm going to talk with you about grief uh, this morning, and then this afternoon I'm, I have another opportunity to come up and talk with you about trauma. And obviously grief and trauma are um, interwoven many times, um, very, very much interwoven. If somebody has had a significant loss, you know, has lost a loved one, um, they're grieving, but if they've lost a loved one suddenly or, or through a, an accident or a natural d disaster, there's probably going to be a component of trauma in that as well. And, and the, the converse is also true. If uh, somebody who's been through a major trauma they have probably also had some significant losses. So there may be, there are some handouts that are you know, part of, that I put together and you might see some crossover. I may refer to some of the trauma stuff this morning. I'm just, you know, I'm kind of a go with the flow of the spirit kind of speaker. So um, it, it, will all, it will all fit together um, by this afternoon, kind of the relationship between grief and trauma. Yeah, the, um, oh, sorry. The handouts for, for grief and trauma are in the um, stacks that are on your table. Um, they should be the, behind the first part on, on take it to the cross. Mm -hmm. um, there's one, there are two handouts on trauma and then one on grief. Right. Um, by the way, I, I failed to mention this earlier, we had to readjust our schedule. Carrie Butler, who, who shared last time on early childhood memories, was going to be here today to talk about emotionally focused therapy and marriage. And um, her husband uh, lost his sister and the services today. So it's kind of apropos that you're talking about grief. But, um, mm -hmm. but anyway, just my, uh, say a prayer for Carrie and, and her husband, Craig. But uh, I apologize for not mentioning that earlier. If you're scratching your head, like, why are we dealing with grief and trauma today? Isn't that supposed to be next time? 
So that's, that's it. But everybody find their handout for grief. Sorry for the interruption, Ruth. Okay, no problem. You were all just freaking out about the change in the program, right? <laughs> you, were, you were traumatized by that. Yeah. Can, can we talk? Do we need to talk about that? We need to debrief? Um, last, the last time we met, and some of you were not able to attend the last time, when, when Paul did the, the, uh, what, he, what he put up here this morning, the, uh, the real, you know, what ought to be, the real down here, and the ideal, I'm not tall enough to put it up very high, but um, what, he, what he put in here the first time he presented this was grief. And I know because I wrote it down in my notes. He put grief in here. Um, today he put shame and, and kind of elaborated on that in a wonderful way. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to refer back to that because that that place that we all, we all exist and sometimes we're a little closer, we, you know, we feel like our lives are, are very blessed and that we're living closer to this end to the, than to this end. Um, but none of us get through life without a, a, a lot of grief. Um, it's just not possible to get through. Some, some of us barely get through a day without a lot of grief. Um, so... That's part of the human experience, daily, weekly, monthly, every year, every uh, decade, every developmental phase that we go, go through, because really, if you think about it, any time we experience change of any kind, whether it's a welcome change or a traumatic change, we experience some level of grief. Um, if you move to a new house like Paul and his wife are doing, this was kind of a, a sudden thing, and they, they made that choice, so obviously they want to make this move, but making a move, you are losing the... You're, you're in a different neighborhood, you have different neighbors, so you're saying goodbye to the neighbors that you had before. Um, you get married, that's a, usually a joyous occasion, but you make, you know, people who get married may be surprised that they experience some grief afterwards because it's such a significant change that, wow, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't see my girlfriends as much as I, I wanted to, that I, as I did before, and I miss that, you know, or I, uh, there are some things about being single that I'm, I'm grieving about because my life has changed. So grief is a very, you know, pervasive experience that is with us for a lifetime and it's present in all kinds of circumstances. Today the grief that I'm going to address mainly is when you're dealing with somebody who is grieving the loss, the death of, a, of a, somebody that they love. So I'm, I'm focusing specifically on that um, because that is, that is an occasion when um, people might be more apt to come to a lay counselor. It's something that um, really challenges people in the spiritual domain. So, um, you know, rather than going to a professional counselor, many people are going to want to go to a pastor, or to a pas pastoral counselor or a lay counselor that is going to deal specifically with um, the crisis. And it does create a crisis for people when they lose somebody important to them. Um, the, I, I learned an interesting fact from the... Um, I'll uh, talk... When I talk about trauma, there's a, a wonderful curriculum that's been produced by the American Association of Christian Counselors um, called Stress and Trauma um, with Military Application. Um, it's a, a great project that they did with the um, Campus Crusade for Christ to um, mil military ministry to help bridge the gap for um, military personnel. Um, but I, I learned in that curriculum that um, the word crisis 
um, it, there's, the, there's a Chinese character for the word crisis, and it's made up of the two concepts of danger and opportunity. And I just love that. That's, that this is the equation that makes me want to kind of specialize in, in working with grief and trauma because when somebody's going through a crisis, they are ex usually extremely vulnerable. That's that place that Paul talked about a, minute, a few minutes ago of, of recognizing, having to recognize your, how, how your need. Um, when, when somebody goes through a, a big trauma or, or is grieving the loss of somebody close to them, it's, it's a crisis. It, they are, they are, there is a sense of danger just because of the, the vulnerability that that creates. I thought that, I thought that my life was like this, and the next day it was like this. I don't even recognize who I am, where I am, what is, what is uh, all of the things that I expected, that I felt that I had some control over. I just found out that I don't, that I, I am lost, I am bereft, I am bereaved. Um, the formula, the, you know, it just didn't work. It didn't work. I thought I did everything right, and yet my child was taken. Uh, my husband was, is gone. Um, I, I have to just reckon with the, the fact that my world is not safe anymore. Because if this can happen, what else can happen? It's very, it makes people acutely aware of that they're, they're vulnerable and that the world is, is dangerous and that somebody can be taken from you suddenly. Um, but there's also, I enjoy working with people who are going through grief because it's such a huge opportunity. Um, it's an opportunity for growth. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk um, more this afternoon about kind of what that, what that growth, that kind of post-traumatic growth, I call it. Um, there's post-traumatic stress, but there's also post-traumatic growth that happens if people are open to it. And the opportunity is, is very rich when people are going through grief or trauma um, to, to build and to reinforce as a helper all of their, um, any, any kind of move toward resiliency, toward, um, toward growth, toward creating meaning from the experience. Not necessarily finding an understanding of it. When we talk about acceptance as a stage, as kind of the final stage of the grief process in a minute, it's not that you, you understand, oh, now I understand why, um, you know, why my, my son died when he, the way that he did or when he did. Um, it's not, because usually we don't. You know, we can't, there are just some things that we are not going to understand till we get to heaven. Um, but we can, we can, we are meaning-making organisms, and we can work through a crisis and find a place of where we can create some meaning out of it. Um, don't have to understand it, but we can come to a different place of uh, interpret interpreting life. And, and uh, like, for example, the, the woman who, um, who formed the, the group Mothers Against Drunk Driving, somebody who lost a child um, due to the actions of a drunk driver. Um, that is her way of creating some meaning from that traumatic loss in her life. So um, C.S. Lewis, who many of you know, um, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed after losing his, his wife, who, whom he, he loved loved almost desperately. He, he, um, they just had an amazing 
love relationship. And he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when we encounter somebody who is going through a, an excruciating grief experience, that's where the opportunity is. That, that's where it really fits with, with Paul's model. That, uh, you know, that, that's an opportunity for, God, for them to really hear God, to experience God in a different way. And you, as, as helpers, as ministers, can be part of that. It's an awesome privilege to help somebody kind of find, find meaning, find the opportunity part of the crisis that they're going through. Um, Paul mentioned a couple weeks ago, um, in another context, the story of Job. And uh, I took another look at that yesterday because, you know, Job's, Job's friends kind of get a bad rap in that story. You know, we, we think, man, they just, they just blew it. You know, he, what an opportunity to bring comfort. And, and they kind of blew it, didn't they? You know, that's kind of how we think of it because in the end, you know, we, um, Job prays for them because, they, uh, you know, what they had done was not what God wanted them to do. But I, I wanted to just talk for a minute about what they did, what they did do that was absolutely right. Because they did some things right. So, um, if, you know, if you want to look at it, but I'll, I'll read just a few verses from Job chapter 2. Um, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So this is after he's lost all of his children, all of his livestock, his entire estate, and his entire family is wiped out, except for his wife. His wife comes along and says... Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Not going to be at the top of the list for consideration in the lay counselor ministry. <laughs> so that's on your, you know, do's and don'ts kind of, you know, table. There's a don't. Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, God, Job did not sin in what he said. Amazingly enough, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And isn't that kind of what happens in the church when, did you hear that, you know, Marjorie's, Husband just died, just had a heart attack and died. We we want it. We are our instinct is to we need to pull together a support group. We we need to have a plan because this is our this is our sister and um, you know we have to go. We gotta go and see what we can do to to help and to comfort. So they they were, I mean that that was good, right? They they put a support group together and they said let's go, let's go to him. Um, so they, they take a journey, and, and another thing I wanted to point out about that, that Job was a, I guess he, we would call him a rancher, you know, he had a lot of property and a lot of livestock, so he was kind of a rancher, we, you know, Texans can relate to him. At, at that time in history, you were considered wealthy if you had a lot of land, you had a lot of livestock. Um, these guys, it doesn't say what they do, but they're probably farmers or sheep herders or, or something as well. So it, it kind of points out that aspect of it, that if you have a team of caregivers, and it, it's wonderful if you have a lot of diversity in that team of caregivers, that way if, you know, if Pat gets a call from somebody who's um, a returning veteran who's dealing with, uh, with a grief process or trauma issues, if you, if you have somebody who's a veteran that, that can really speak that person's language, can really relate to that person's type of, you know, language, culture, because the military is a, is a culture unto itself. 
Um, if, if the person's a doctor, uh, a, a therapist, a, you know, in some walk of life where there's a, a distinct kind of language and culture, it's wonderful to be able to match that person with, with a caregiver that understands how to speak that person's language. You can't always find, you know, you can't always create that, that match, but if, if it's somebody who's in a very specialized kind of profession or walk of life, that's just something, something to consider. Um, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. That's how devastated he was. They couldn't even recognize him. Um, they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. So they, they saw that just the depth of his devastation, and they were so moved by it that they stopped right where they were, from even from far off, and they just entered into his grief with him. Before they even got there, they're, they're experiencing, they're empathizing with his, the extent of his loss, his devastation. So that's good, right? They're joining with him at that point. And then they do a remarkable thing. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Has anybody ever done that? Anybody in here? I know I haven't. I haven't sat with somebody for seven days and seven nights. Um, and no one said a word to him. Can you imagine? Sitting with a grieving person for seven days and seven nights and nobody says a word. I don't think we could do that. We're so wordy. Um, There's a great, great expression I heard recently. Don't just do something, stand there. You know, sometimes that's, that's what you need to do. Just be still. It wasn't time to say anything. And they were, in my opinion, they were doing great up to this point. They, they made some significant sacrifices to just be there with this man. Um, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Just let that, let that just kind of settle. That sometimes that's, sometimes the greatest respect for somebody who is in devastation is to just bear witness to it and just keep your mouth shut and bear witness to it and just be there and acknowledge how great the suffering is. What happens though, after the seven days and the seven nights, um, Job opened his mouth and he, you know, again, these friends, um, I give them credit for staying silent until Job said something. Once Job opened his mouth and started uh, cursing the day of his birth, and most of chapter 3 is his just, it's, it's a poem, it's almost a, a poem cursing the day of his birth in various ways. Um, so that's, that's chapter, chapter 4. It, well, chapter 3, chapter 4 opens up with Eliphaz is the first one. As soon as he starts talking, that's where you see the, the helping process start to break down when they start talking to him. Because if you read through that, um, you'll find that they, they, all, they all came up with arguments. They came up with arguments and theological treaties about what was happening to him and cliches and spiritual platitudes, and um, if you want to, you know, add to your list of, of don'ts in dealing with grieving people, you know, they don't, they don't need to hear stuff like, um, well, you know, God makes all things to work together for good. There may be a point where that's ab absolutely the perfect thing to say, but if you say it at the wrong time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like an argument or it's going to sound like a, a confrontation or it's going to sound like 
so the way that I feel is wrong, or I'm, I, don't have, I don't have any faith, or there's something wrong with me, I'm not doing this right. I'm not grieving right. I'm not feeling the way I'm supposed to feel. I'm supposed to understand and accept that, that there's something good about this situation. Well, I don't think so. I don't think there's anything good about this situation, and I don't see where, how God could use this in any way for my good. And that, that is a crisis of, in somebody, it creates a brokenness in that fellowship with God. And if you intervene too quickly in that, then you, you know, as Paul was saying, you, you kind of have to let that pain exist for a while. And uh, you have to let it be and have to be very sensitive to the Holy Spirit as to when the person is open to that opportunity to, to start creating some meaning. Those kind of, because that's really what, what we're wanting to do is is, um, you know, you'll see someday that there's meaning in it. And that's what I will do sometimes, um, not just say a scripture, but, but say, uh, use that principle that's in Romans chapter 8 to, to reinforce the idea that right now, this is just a mess, and, you, and I'm so sorry for this loss, I can't even imagine what you're feeling right now. And I don't know why this happened. I don't know if you will ever know why um, or how or, or understand it at all. But all, all I can say to you is that God does know and see you and God, God is here, God is with you and he is in the business of um, caring for you, and at some point you may have some you may have some answers. But in the meantime, let's just talk about what's going on with you right now. Um, I, I really liked this um, this quote that's on on your handout. It just says, "Needed a strong, deep person." wise enough to allow me to grieve in the depth of who I am and strong enough to hear my pain without turning away. I need someone who believes that the sun will rise again but who does not fear my darkness. Someone who can point out the rocks in my way without making me a child by carrying me. Someone who can stand in thunder and watch the lightning and believe in a rainbow. So I like, I like these three guys in that, in that respect. Um, I like them better than I did before because, because of the seven days and seven nights that they were willing to sit with him. Um, Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, we, um, we as a culture are, are not so good at death, at dealing with death. You know, in, in Previous generations, um, I think they were better. I think they were better at accepting that death is part, it's what happens to us all. You know, there were, um, I don't know if you know, but the, um, wow, time does fly, doesn't it? Um, homes used to have a parlor, and part of the reason for that was that it was a place to, you know, lay out, lay out your dead, right? And people would come and they'd keen and they'd, they'd grieve and they'd weep and they'd wail. And, you know, in European countries, you know, widows would dress in black for years. You know, there's, they'd have, some cultures have elaborate parades and, and bands and processions and it goes on for days and days. We, we like to keep it very sanitary and, and, you know, get it done, get it done quickly. Um, so there used to be parlors. You don't see parlors in homes anymore. What do we call the place that we gather in our homes? We call it a living room. Isn't that kind of interesting? Um, they used, homes used to be equipped with a dying room. 
now we don't have dying rooms, we only have living rooms, because we, like we don't like to focus on, on death. We just, we avoid it uh, with all that we have. So, so when somebody's going through the grief of, of losing a loved one, if you are willing to just be that person who is strong enough and deep enough and wise enough to allow that person to just have their, have their process, however messy it is, um, and it is messy. Um, Paul had said la- the last time, he, he mentioned about Kleenex, you know, that I, I don't give somebody a Kleenex. I make sure that they know that the Kleenex are there. That's kind of a, a metaphor for me is, you know, if somebody's crying in my office, I'm not going to hand them a Kleenex. Not that it's a major sin to hand somebody a Kleenex, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. But I would rather, I, I also will make sure that it's right there, it's, right, it's very available and very, that they know that it's there, um, because sometimes what you can communicate is, you know, I, your feelings are, are kind of getting really messy right now, you know, you're kind of snotting and, and you're, you're, you know, this is making me uncomfortable, um, so could you kind of clean up a little bit? Um, you could unwittingly be giving that message. Not necessarily, but it's just something to be aware of. Um, That metaphorically, you know, those tears, that stuff that our body does when we're just overtaken with sorrow, um, it's what what we're supposed to do, you know? And so you don't want to, you don't want to give somebody the idea that that's wrong, that, that they can't, they can't be a mess because they, because they are a mess. And if you communicate, it's not okay for you to be a mess right now, either physically or emotionally, you know, they might close, close down and not be able to receive the, not, not feel as safe with you to do that. So let's, let's move on um, and um, just talk for a minute about these stages of grief. Stages of grief, this, this is not, uh, people have kind of, over overused this model. It comes from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Um, she was a psychiatrist who um, became very interested in, in just hearing the stories, really hearing the hearts of people who were dying because she worked in hospital settings for the most part and she, she became um, very disturbed and alarmed at the way that people who had terminal illnesses, the way that they were treated. Um, and she is kind of the, the pioneer of the whole hospice and palliative care movement. Um, in, in the interests of when people are dying and they know that they're dying and there are not, um, there isn't um, a, an appropriate treatment that's going to cure them, there are certain things that we can do to provide a place of comfort and, and alleviate pain so that they can have a good death. And so that's really where the, um, where this, these stages of grief came from. And now they've been applied in to so many, so many situations in life, which is, which is fine. I mean, they are, it is a very powerful and simple model to be aware of, um, that when, when something, um, when you have experienced a, a a loss, um, that they're, the first thing that usually happens is kind of, it's, it's denial, but it's kind of combined with shock. Often, oftentimes you, you'll see, say, the widow at the funeral, and she's like on autopilot because her husband died suddenly, you know, three days ago, and here she is having to dress up in her in her black suit and in her pantyhose and show up and greet everybody and talk and, and remain standing and remain functioning while this, you know, she's in complete shock. So in order to be able to do that, she's operating in a certain amount of denial. It's the, the reality of it is kind of pushed out to the edges so that you can survive it. Because we're in, you know, God um, created us to have this capacity to take um, our traumatic experiences in small, smaller pieces 
so that we're not completely overwhelmed with it. Um, if we had to deal with some of our grief all at once, it would probably kill us. We'd be, a, we'd be dust. Um, so at, denial is very useful in, in, that, in that way. Often we'll see people then, when they start to move out of denial, they're ready to start processing their feelings. And one of the feelings that often comes out is anger. Why did this happen? How could God let this happen? I thought, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, God would treat me better, or, you know, or anger at the person who is gone, or anger at themselves for something that they did or failed to do that might have saved the person. Um, then you might, you might see somebody go through kind of a bargaining process, and bargaining would be all the sorting out of, well, what if this had happened, or what if I, if I, if I did this, maybe, um, maybe, you know, when, in anticipatory grief, when, when somebody knows that somebody's going to die soon, maybe if, if we do this, we'll, you know, we'll save him, and, and all of that, that kind of bargaining that goes on. Um, then off, often we'll see a, a period of depression when the denial has lifted. Oh, this he, she, you know, she really is gone. My daughter really is gone. Um, I don't know how I'm going to live without having her in my life. She's so much a part of me. How do I, how do I go on without this person? Um, depression and just that the real sorrow can set in. Um, and these are, these are not stages in terms of you, you do this one, then you do this one, then you do this one. They just, and if you've been through grief, and I'm sure that, I, you know, I'm not going to poll, but many of you in this room could speak volumes about what grieving is like. You've been through a lot more of it than I have. Um, and you know that, that you experience all these things, and sometimes it's, it's a whole storm it's like a cyclone of one moment you're angry and one moment you're sad and one moment you're lonely and one moment you're then you're angry again and so it's not it's not a linear process it's often very messy and overlapping and layers and you know and sometimes when there's a loss it brings back um, all these other layers of loss that um, the person has experienced previously. So it may, it may seem like their grief is, is even bigger than you would anticipate, um, but they, um, it, it's being compounded by many other sorrows and, and griefs. And any of you experience that you know, stresses and traumas and losses sometimes come in, in batches, if <laughs> you've been through that. Um, so um, the, the stages are just something to be aware of and something that you can use to kind of give a, it, it's very simple. So you can say, well, you know, these are some of the things that people experience. And you may, you may experience all of them, you may experience none of them, but this, you know, if it helps, great. If not, it's not a big deal. It's just a, it's just a model to, that it's helpful for some people. Um, you know, I think about David, King David, when he um, had sinned with Bathsheba and, um, and then he was, um, had um, her husband, you know, killed in battle and um, tried to cover it up. And um, he uh, then, you know, Bathsheba was pregnant, right? And you remember she had the baby and the, um, the baby was very ill. And David um, went into a... a a process, a period for about a week of intense grief. I mean, he just um, stripped down. He was on his face before the Lord. Um, he, was, he was doing a bit of, I, I, I imagine that he was doing a bit of bargaining with God. He, w he was grieving. He was angry. He was repenting. Um, you know, according to Psalm 51, you know, he did recognize the enormity of his guilt and, and was very repentant about it. He was probably going through depression, um, denial, anger, all, all of that stuff. Then he, um, after seven days, you know, his, his servants came to him and they, they were a little afraid to go in and 
tell him that his son had died. You know, if he's grieving like this, you know, with his son still being alive, what's he going to do when we tell him that his son has died? Anybody remember what, what he does do? He, when they tell him, you know, he, he says, tell me about the child. Is he dead? And they say, yes. He gets up. He gets up. He, you know, takes a shower, gets dressed, and goes down and eats. He hasn't eaten for seven days. He goes and eats, and, and they say, well, what? they didn't understand that. You know, why were you so upset before, and now you're... He said, well, I, you know, I thought while, I, while the child lived... I could maybe, you know, God would hear me and God would reverse the situation. Now that I know that that's, that wasn't his will, might as well start to find a new normal. You know, and that's, that's really what, you, what, we, what we're doing when we're caring for somebody who's lost somebody that is important to them is your life will not be the same. It will not be the same because you feel this level of grief because you really loved somebody. If we didn't love, we wouldn't grieve. So that's, that's a, a way to kind of frame, frame it for, for people. Of course, you're, of course you're a mess. <laughs> of course you're a mess because you really love this person. And that's a good thing. You know, who, who among us is going to say um, that, let's say a child dies at five, you know, there's a, a tragic and sudden loss of a child at age five. The, the grief is unspeakable, and yet you ask the parent, well, if you'd known it, that this was going to happen and that it would hurt like this, would you have, if you could go back Knowing that, would you have that child? Of course, because that was your child. Um, we grieve because we love. And uh, so we don't want to, we don't want to take that away. We want to do, do and say things and not do and say things that will allow the person to just put some language to their their thoughts and their feelings when they're ready to. Um, and this, the goals of care kind of just walks through. You, you may notice that those one, two, three, four, five kind of correspond generally to the stages of grief. That uh, you, you help the person work through their denial by talking about it. But talking about the person, I had a client a couple years ago that had lost, suddenly lost a, a nephew. It was an accidental um, self-inflicted gun, gunshot um, that killed him. And she, the first two sessions, she could not, would not say his name. So I, you know, I, I asked her his name. And um, once she told me his name, I kept, I always used his name because she would just say, my nephew, my nephew, my nephew, and I started using his name, so she would get, so she would feel like it's okay. It's not you're not gonna, you know, nothing bad is gonna happen if you just actually say his name. I wanted her to really connect with him as a person and tell me who he was and what she loved about him and and memories and just talk about it and make it real that he was alive, that he was a real person for her and that he's gone. And to, when I go to do uh, trauma debriefings, I'll talk more about that later, but that's, that's very important that you name, the, you name the incident, you name the person, you just model that, that it's okay. It's okay for us to talk about this as a real thing that's happening to you. Um, if you are reluctant to just speak very plainly about it, um, then they might be more reluctant to speak very plainly about it. So I am uh, running out of time. Um, um, I wanted to give a moment. There's, there's some information on your handout about complicated bereavement. 
and I won't, I won't go into all that now, but you can read through that. Complicated bereavement, is, it generally looks like when somebody gets really stuck at a certain place in their grief process, and it's been, you know, it's been a year or two, there's no, there's no fixed time for grieving, and that's another thing that you want to communicate to people that you, I don't know how long you're going to be feeling this way, you know, it, and there's no, there's no time limit on grief, you know, it's just, it's an ongoing um, fluid process, but, if, but you can kind of come to recognize when somebody's really gotten stuck, when it's not a fluid process at all, and they're, they're very stuck in depression, or they're, um, they're just being ira- very irrational about something, some aspect of the situation. And that, that might be in a, a time when you want to refer that person to a mental health professional, you know, be evaluated for depression. They might need some medication. They might need some more ex- intensive therapy for that, um, for complicated bereavement. But I, I wanted to give, I, I have a friend of mine that's here, um, who has worked mainly with children. I just wanted to give her a couple minutes to talk about some of the distinctions uh, of working with young children or, or teen- teenagers even, um, because children grieve differently. So I'd like to invite Cindy Gosnell to come up and um, talk for a minute about that, and then we'll, we'll take a few minutes if you have questions or comments after that. I'll just talk from down here. How's that? (laughs) Um, Working with children, there's an interdependence with their grief and their child's development level. Um, The child from three to five years or preschool, they don't really understand the permanence of death. Um, It's very common for them to ask, where's mommy or when will daddy come home? They're not trying to add to their parents' grief, but they really don't understand that daddy's gone to heaven and he's not coming back. Another thing we've we've seen um, is that they may say things like they want to go to heaven or they want to go see daddy. And that's normal because, um, you you know, we don't want to scare them into thinking that heaven's a bad place. And we describe heaven as this beautiful place. So they want to go there and be with them. Um, They don't understand that once you go to heaven, you can't come back. Elementary age, five to nine years of age. um, This is a very egocentric age. Here the child will think that well, if they had been good, or if they had been a better child, or um, there was something they should have been there, they could have prevented their, you know, their parent or their loved one from dying. Um, here, it's very important to build on their self-esteem and to emphasize their importance. Uh, the teenagers, the preteen, here you're going to really want to watch for uh, signs of hopelessness or helplessness. They're going to start feeling alienated from their friends. Um, we hear a lot where they are very much aware that they are now different because many of their peers have not experienced the same loss that they have now. They've been forced to grow up. Um, and with children, we found that they have a psychological relationship with their lost one. And as they go through their milestones, as they develop, they will want to go back and re-experience this grief and this loss and a new understanding of the relationship. But things that you can do to help a child through their grief is keeping that line of communication open, um, helping them to express their feelings of sadness, of pain, um, and then providing a healthy outlet for those. And then also memorializing their loved one so that they know that the loved one's not forgotten. Um, Even as, you know, if the loved one dies when they're five or six, they're still going to want to memorialize and remember their loved one when they're a teenager. It's very important to their their healthy development. But um, those are things that we can do to help children through their grief. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, I don't don't work with children very much, so I really wanted that that valuable um, input. Um, There is wonder in the power of grief. We don't appreciate its healing powers, yet they are extraordinary and wondrous. It is just as amazing as the physical healing that occurs after a car accident or major surgery. Grief transforms the broken, wounded soul, a soul that no longer wants to get up in the morning, a soul that can find no reason for living, a soul that has suffered an unbelievable loss. Grief alone has the power to heal. 
even uh, our friend Sigmund Freud recognized that, that grief, grief is not an illness. It's not something that you have to cure or prevent. He said grieving is a, a natural process that should not be tampered with. So I'll, I'll leave you with that, that idea that we are, we are witnesses, we are fellow laborers, we, are, um, we join with people because we all have known grief or will know grief. And so we can, the best thing we can do is join, make that connection, create a place of safety, help the person to give words and thoughts and feelings to what they're experiencing. Um, normalize it, any symptoms that they're having, just normalize it that, yeah, this really hurts. This really hurts and it may hurt for a long time. I'm with you. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave you alone. Anything that I can do to help you, help you to grieve because grieving is what you need to do and it's normal and it's natural and it's it's, ma it's magical. I mean, you might not want to use the word magical, but, but it is. And I, I like that quote from Kubler-Ross, you know, that it, it's powerful. It's very powerful and necessary for, for us to let that happen and let God have his way with, with the people that we're helping. Thank you. Um, do, we, do we have time for questions? Yeah, we have, we have time for a couple of questions if anybody okay. has one. Yes. Or do you, do you, okay, where we're going? Uh, what do you suggest when somebody wants to blame God? Um, they want to blame God when someone wants to blame God. Um, again, you want to be um, slow to react, you know, quick to listen, slow to speak. Um, it's not going to... Uh, you know, God is not going to be uh, offended and walk away, right? Um, so it's part of the anger, you know, that, that anger process that is usually some part of, of the grief process. Anger could be very well be directed at God. And uh, so if you try to move somebody away from that too soon, again, they'll, they will, the, you'll see resistance, Start, start to come up. They might not, might not come back because it needs to be safe for them to be angry with God also. Um, so, you know, I, I, would, I would say to normalize that and then as you see the person working through it themselves, to be, you just want to be careful not to do what Job's friends did and try to make a lot of theological arguments about it. We don't have to defend God. God's quite able to take care of himself. How would you deal with someone that suffered previously with depression and anxiety before experiencing the loss of a loved one? Um, if uh, that might be a situation where, where as a lay, uh, a lay helper, you would want to be in consultation with a professional counselor or if the person has had some therapy to, to deal, to address their depression, you might want to seek their permission to consult with that therapist and just have anything you can do to strengthen the person's support system. Um, you want to you wanna talk to them about, you know, ask questions about, you know, if you're, if you're hearing just helplessness and hopelessness, if that's the prevailing theme, worthlessness, you know, heavy guilt reaction, maybe survivor guilt, they survived the accident and their brother didn't, that kind of thing. Um, you want to you wanna really address that, make that real, so, so you're feeling really hopeless right now. And ask, and I don't know if there's, if we're going to be talking at some point, Paul, about suicide prevention, Yes. Um, but just um, in this context to, to ask them, you know, are you, are you thinking about hurting yourself or, or wanting to die? And at that point, you know, what you learn about suicide ass assessment and prevention, then that kicks in and you want to make sure that the person is, is transitioned to a place of safety. 
Um, okay. Uh, can you say a little bit more about the complicated grief? Okay. Um, complicated grief, an example, I had a, a client that came to me for a couple of years, and I had counseled with her daughter, and then her daughter um, died of an accident, what we presumed was an accidental overdose. But this, this mom had been so, the, the daughter was mentally ill, and so this mother had been just so intensely involved in every aspect of her daughter's life. And uh, so losing this girl was just, you know, she, it was just extraordinary. I mean, it just, what Paul talked about, you know, things that come along and threaten our, our sense of significance, our whole sense of purpose. Not only did she lose this daughter that was so precious to her, um, but she lost her job. I mean, her job was keeping her daughter safe, and uh, she wasn't able to keep her daughter safe. And I, that was a case where I saw her get into kind of a complicated bereavement situation because she was did have such a, a complicated relationship with her daughter. So, uh, so much ambivalence there. There were feelings of like, there were uh, some feelings of relief that, you know, now she didn't have it because this... Girl, this girl was very difficult, very difficult to deal with. Um, so the ambivalence that she felt um, complicated it, the suddenness of it, um, the, the fact that she was with, uh, she died in the home of somebody that she didn't even know. I mean, there were just a lot of factors around the death that, that complicated the grief process for this mom. Um, to where she would just, week after week after week, you know, she would just, I saw her getting stuck at times in just a certain place of anger where she just couldn't, she couldn't, um, she had other children that she had to take care of and she, it was really compromising her ability to, to function. And that, that's normal, it's to be expected in the, real, the early stages of grief, but if two or three years down the road, they may still be grieving, but if they're not beginning to function a little bit better, then you have a more complicated bereavement situation. One more. Can you speak a little bit about the timeline? If you're a late counselor and we have short-term, mm -hmm. um, six weeks or something, uh, grieving, I think for you know a spouse, a child, it, would be very normal for one or two years, often mm -hmm. the second year being oh, worse yeah. than the first. How, how do we sort of fit in there um, if we're only around for six weeks? Okay, really good question. Um, you're, not going, you're not going to be meeting with that person for more than six weeks, let's say, but you can, be, you can work on them. It's gonna be essential to make sure that there's some kind of bridge, you know, that there is a transition, that after the six weeks, they don't feel like they've just dropped out of their, you know, the safety net has just disappeared. You would want to connect them with, you know, if you need to continue to work on this and you want some support and some help, you know, refer them to the Grief Resource Center or to a grief recovery group because that's, that's often um, very, very helpful for people who are going through grief is to work in a group because of the power of that sense of community. Sometimes only somebody who has been through what you're going through can you feel it can really identify with you. So, you know, I would try to create a, a bridge for that person to transition to another level of care so they don't feel like they've been dropped uh, off the map. Um, and to set up, to, to, do, to educate them about these things, these things, you might feel these things, you might experience these things, and it's normal, and it's natural, and it's God's, God has wired you to be able to do this, and you can do this, you can grieve, you can grieve well. You know, some people grieve really well, everybody grieves, some people grieve really well, some people grieve really badly. People who grieve really well are, um, become better, and those that grieve badly become bitter. Oftentimes, you go, go to any nursing home, you can spot them. You can spot the little old lady that's been, of course, you know, you get to be 80 years old, you've had lots and lots and lots of losses, right? 
but some of them are just sweet as can be. They're just wonderful, giving, caring, still engaged in life. And some of them you look at and you can say, boy, that the person has not grieved well, you know, because they're angry and bitter people. Amen. Thanks so much. Anything, right. any final word, Ruth, before we go to our break? Well, let's just help people to grieve well. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, we're going to take a quick break. Um, are y'all okay for like a 30-minute uh, session before we do lunch? That'd be great. Let's um, briefly pray and then take a quick 10-minute break. Um, it's, it's really a little after 11.15, but if we could start back at 11.25, I'd love it. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your willingness to be with us in our grief and to empower us to help others to grieve well. Thank you for the message that Ruth has, has given us today. Lord, let us take it to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.